Studies Colloquium for this afternoon. Yeah. Um, thanks for being here. I'm Lisa Parks, and I'm going to be introducing our speaker for today. Um, Dr. Jennifer Holt is Associate Professor in the Department of Film and Media Studies at UC Santa Barbara. She was the co-director of the Media Industries Project of the Carsey Wolf Center at UCSB. And she's also been a faculty affiliate of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. She's the co-founder of the Media Industries Journal as well. Um, and she's currently serving on the board of that journal. Um, just to give you a little bit more background about Professor Holt, she's a very highly respected scholar of media industries specializing in issues of regulatory law and policy and digital dis distribution. Her first book, um, and I'm gonna pass these around like I tend to do and <laughs> if I have the books. Um, her first book, Empires of Entertainment, Media Industries and the Politics of Deregulation, is a detailed history of US media deregulation policies from the Reagan era through the precedent-setting Telecommunication Policy Act of 1996. It's a really important book. I'm going to pass that around in case you're interested in looking at it. Um, her co-edited book, which I don't have with me, it's at home in my library. She has a co-edited book called Media Industries, History, Theory, and Method from 2009, which brought together research by top scholars who consider the transformation of media industries in relation to the emergence of digital technologies neoliberal business practices and globalization. Um, as co-director of the Media Industries Project with Michael Curtin, um, Holt co-edited two more important books on the topic of digital distribution. The first, some of you are familiar with because we read her chapter in it for this week in our class, um, Connected Viewing, Selling, Sharing, and Streaming Media in the Digital Age, which came out in 2013. So I'll pass that around. And then another one that's equally significant, Distribution Revolution, Conversations about the Future of Film and Television from UC Press in 2014. Maybe we can send that around that way. Um, I'll just say Holt has a way of distilling uh, very complex regulatory matters into intelligible forms that scholars, students, and publics can understand and act upon. Um, for instance, she's on the front end of tracking transitions that are happening around the world regarding issues of net neutrality and the jurisdiction and regulation of digital intermediaries that are also known as content delivery networks or CDNs. We talked about those a little bit in class this week. She is now working on yet another book um, called From Convergence to the Cloud, Media Policy in the Digital Era, and her talk today is related to this new book project, and it's called Cloud Policy, Anatomy of a Regulatory Crisis. So please join me in welcoming Professor Holt. Thank you so much, Lisa, and thanks to all of you for um, having me here for the invitation and the hospitality. Um, I've been here for the media and transition conferences, and that those have always been so generative for me. And, and the interdisciplinary conversations that you guys host here have really made a difference to how I look at this field. So thanks again for allowing me to be a part of that here. Um, today, as Lisa was saying, I want to talk about part of the book project I'm working on. In some ways, I hate the title. So I'm, in, I'm open to any suggestions. Um, right now it's titled From Convergence to the Cloud, History of Digital Media Regulation. But I'm kind of thinking about it as the empires strike back, because 
it starts from the Telecom Act and it goes through um, the Obama era. And it's the last one was about um, film and cable and broadcast and the path, the kind of regulatory and legal blueprint that allowed them to deregulate. And this looks like it's the revenge of the wires kind of thing. So I'm gonna, I'll talk more about it. Um, but today I'm gonna talk about the legal and the cultural crises surrounding the regulation of data in the cloud um, in the US. This is part of the work I'm doing on the history of policies related to digital media infrastructure and distribution. Um, in the 20 year span, again, from the Telecom Act through the Obama era with an epilogue about what has happened since the um, Trump administration. Um, 1996 was actually a moment when it looked like the federal government might wrap their heads and their arms around um, digital media policy, but in fact, they did not do that at all. And Patricia Ofterheide wrote a comprehensive analysis of the 96 Telecom Act in which she recounts quote, it's long history of inelegance, end quote, and political process that traces back to the earliest imprecise uses of the public interest in the 1920s. And I like that characterization a lot, that long history of inelegance. Um, and this most recent history that I'm talking about today is a continuation of that inelegance, minus the pretense of the public interest, um, because that concept has been totally abandoned in this landscape. Um, the book that I'm working on looks at a wide range of industries, broadcast, cable, telecommunications, social media, and digital platforms, and also infrastructures, um, broadband pipelines, telephone wires, computer hardware, data centers, all as part of the larger story about the dramatic disconnect, or what I like to think about as the regulatory hangover that we have now between technology and regulatory policy. Um, this hangover, which has really existed since the first wireless era during radio, has been intensified by the digital media transmission, storage, access, and exchange. Um, currently, it's affecting, among other things, data security, personal privacy, and the structures of governance to protect them both. Um, safeguarding digital data in a policy landscape that is simultaneously local, national, regional, and global has created problems that often defy legal paradigms and traditional geographies of control. Um, consequently, this complex landscape of laws and policies governing digital data is currently rife with really unresolvable conflicts, which is part of the crisis I refer to in the title of the talk. These unresolvable conflicts are only proliferating as technology and its user cultures continue to outpace the vision and supposed architects of policy. And that's another part of the crisis. Um, today, I'm looking at some of our current challenges with an eye towards regulatory technology, technological and cultural histories. Um, histories that have been shared with and shaped by heavy breathers. I don't know if you guys know about obscene phone calls or what they used to be because um, no one does that really anymore. But it, it's like this awesome invasion of privacy that used to happen when people would call your home phone and breathe heavily or um, like say really disgusting things. And my sister and I loved it. We thought it was the funniest thing that could happen. And we used to listen to them. We used to, used to stay on the line and you're supposed to hang up immediately. But we used to listen to them until we got busted. Um, but. It was great, but that doesn't happen anymore. 
Um, organized crime wiretaps are also part of this history I'm talking about, and the video rental habits of failed US Supreme Court nominees, which I'll explain. <laughs> so ultimately, these intertwined histories of policies related to privacy, data security, and personal freedoms I think become most instructive when they're brought to bear on current regulatory issues facing our data in the cloud, revealing the growing stakes for the digital fu futures of culture, information, and citizen citizenship. Um, I'm interested in this evolving landscape of laws and policies governing digital media distribution, particularly for this talk as they intersect with shifts and cultural anxieties around privacy protections and the parallel industry concerns around data um, security and storage. Um, it's interesting, some of the legal cases I'm reading, they are actually kind of fighting for personal privacy too, but they totally disavow that and are only focused on uh, data security. It, I'll talk a little bit about that when I talk about the Microsoft case. Um, other chapters in the book look at broadband pipelines, computer hardware, and media platforms, but today I want to talk about data in the cloud as it functions as one of the nexus points of these concerns. So since the cloud is uh, really just somebody else's computer and all of that data has to be stored somewhere, I want to talk first briefly about some regulatory dilemmas related to the operation and functioning of data centers, which are really the heart of the cloud and much of its physical infrastructure. And my goal here is to help illuminate how policies around data and digital freedoms are evolving in ways that are not immediately obvious and not beneficial to private citizens. And then I'll move on to issues of jurisdiction, data ownership and security, and our rights to privacy in the digital ecosystem at large. Um, well, the inspired public relations brainchild imagery of the cloud kind of conjures up visions of emails and documents and TV episodes residing somewhere celestial and then floating back down to Earth when you need them. Um, the reality of cloud storage is much less ethereal. Um, the cloud is a brilliant marketing concept that renders the physical, infrastructural realities of remote data storage into a very palatable abstraction for those who are using it, consciously or not. There was a recent Pew survey that said 95% of those who think they are not using the cloud 95%, that's almost everybody who thinks they're not using the cloud is actually using the cloud. Um, whether in the act of shopping or banking online or gaming or social, using social networks, streaming media or storing photos. Um, there's also this great stat about cloud imposters. So people on dates and in job interviews who pretend to know what the cloud is. And there's, a, there's like 65% of those people who don't really know what the cloud is, but in very specific situations pretend. Um, are you a cloud imposter? Um, I can help. Um, <clears throat> Vincent Mosco, uh, Tong Hui Hu, and Christopher Yu, among others, have done some really excellent cultural historic and historical and legal analysis of the cloud as it has evolved thus far, who in his book, um, A Prehistory of the Cloud, which I really recommend, um, in particular has noted that the cloud is, quote, an idea, as an idea, has exceeded its technological platform and become a potent metaphor for the way contemporary society organizes and understands itself, end quote. Indeed, we rely, as much on the metaphor of the cloud as we do on its infrastructure to make sense of its function in our lives. Um, and despite all of this abstract 
rhetoric and imagery, the cloud is of course quite material and very dependent on a vast series of networks, um, network computers and servers in server farms or data centers that are spread across the world for its operation. Um, these data centers strive to remain invisible in many ways. And here I've been really inspired by Lisa's early work on the politics of infrastructure and its strategic disguises that, as she writes, keep citizens naive and uninformed about the network technologies they subsidize and use every day. Never has that been more true than when we talk about data centers. Um, they, ma they maintain a very high degree of secrecy, allowing very few visitors from the outside in and keeping their locations operating procedures and devices largely out of the press as a matter of security um, and competition in the market. One very notable exception was when Google in 2012 made a very pronounced and spectacular promotional push to promote their data centers as visible, accessible, and environmentally friendly. Um, and that's been widely used by scholars for commentary, including myself in um, Lisa's book. <coughs> signal traffic, um, they invited to come, the public to come inside and see where the internet lives. Um, and the image of technology on the site were devoted to revealing Google's data centers, offering colorful shots of um, computers and wires and routers and switches and pipes and hard drives um, that arguably render this infrastructure much less visible when it's decontextualized in a lot of ways. It kind of becomes a form of abstract art. Um, but the more general refusal to discuss where they're located um, and other details about how or how much data is processed in these centers has led some in the industry to liken the culture of confidentiality surrounding server farms to the ethos of Fight Club, right? The first rule of data centers is don't talk about the data centers. I want to have a conference in a data center. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone would know what happened. And the rejections that I've been receiving from my requests, I already see the program and it's going to be like, they're going to be printed on the program in the background. So um, stay tuned from an invitation you probably won't receive for a conference. It's not going to happen. All right. Um, the jurisdiction over data in the cloud, or rather how um, data is regulated and legally understood when it's stored in computers that are accessed remotely, is yet another level of invisibility. Um, data centers have found some legal precedent as the geographic location of data in the cloud. However, whether that data is determined to exist um, in one place, that of one data center, or multiple locations where the data is collected and then processed and then stored, usually in fragments, at a wide variety of centers, um, still remains unresolved and in flux and as a huge problem. Um, data originates in one country, passes through, and is stored in others, often simultaneously existing in several foreign jurisdictions, as well as federal, state, and state jurisdictions in the US. This multi-jurisdictional nature of cloud computing um, creates significant problems and called um, with involving something called the choice of law doctrine, which is a set of rules used to select which jurisdiction's laws apply in a lawsuit, um, including the question of what courts can even determine or hear disputes about what laws apply, state or federal or extraterritorial. So into this void have stepped private corporations that in many ways are the tail wagging the dog as they increasingly dictate policy now with their terms of service agreements and um, end user license agreements or EULAs. I don't know if I put the term, yeah, EULAs up there. Um, 
EULAs and contracts often have stipulations including choice of law provisions. For example, let's look at Amazon Web Services, um, which has quietly become a massive utility hosting almost a third of all internet sites, including the CIA, which has a $600 million cloud contract with them, and the US Navy and the Federal Reserve and the Department of Defense are also using AWS. Um, I just have to stop here, and I'm going to try not to laugh while I'm saying this, but Amazon also just in introduced the service called Amazon Key, where some nameless courier guy can walk in your house while you're not there and leave packages. What could possibly go wrong? And, and their connection, all this connection with um, the CIA, I just, invite me back in a year, please, to discuss the disaster that is Amazon Key. That would be fun talk to do and to write. So anyway, Amazon has data servers located all across the US and really all over the world. Sao Paulo, Rio, Amsterdam, all over Europe. New Delhi, Hong Kong, Manila, Singapore, Sydney, Taipei, Tokyo. However, Amazon requires that any cloud computing dispute must be resolved in Washington state. They're based in Seattle. Um, even if the user is located in a different part of the world, because location is absolutely key to resolving legal issues. So when you click I agree, um, you agree that the, state, the laws of the state of Washington, without reference to conflict of law rules, govern this agreement and any dispute of any sort that might arise between you and us. Um, they go on and on, but you're basically consenting to exclusive jurisdiction in the courts of the state of Washington. Um, so spend some time reading these EULAs, and I do mean time. Um, iTunes agreement is longer than Macbeth. Um, PayPal's is longer than Hamlet. I use them as reading assignments in my Future of Media course. And I feel that as media scholars, these are foundational texts for all of us. Um, AT&T recently updated its terms of service for its DSL customers with an interesting addition. The company will now suspend the accounts of those who speak badly about AT&T. And I'm imagining on social media, they mean. I don't, mean, I don't think they're recording us, but what do I, I mean? <laughs> we are talking about privacy and paranoia here. Your service may be suspended if your comments, quote, tend to damage the name or reputation of AT&T or its parents, affiliates, and subsidiaries. Um, these EULAs have become so ridiculous that one of our own, Professor Christian Sandvig at the University of Michigan, is suing the Attorney General of the United States over them. In Sandvig v. Sessions, the ACLU is challenging the constitutionality of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFAA, um, which makes it a federal crime to access a computer in a manner that exceeds authorized access, according to their terms of service. Um, this law has been, which has been called the worst law in technology and the most outrageous criminal law you've never heard of by Tim Wu in The New Yorker. Um, but I'm sure many of you have heard of it here because of its role in the case against Aaron Swartz. Um, it's an insanely vague federal anti-hacking law that basically criminalizes most online research and prevents academics, researchers, and journalists from doing their work in a way that is not sanctioned by the site itself. Um, so the corporate overreach that is filling the vacuum left by the lack of relevant policy has also been eroding our freedoms and rights as digital citizens. Um, those freedoms are what Christian Sandvig is trying to protect on his sabbatical, <laughs> making the rest of us feel like lazy bums, but good for him. Opening arguments began last week if you want to follow the case, and I, I recommend that you do. Um, the domestic legal landscape 
is just one of many relevant jurisdictions. Every country has its own patchwork of laws and regulations that concern data and privacy. Keeping track of all of these laws is nearly impossible. Keeping track of where the data resides is a job in and of itself. As data warehouse uh, manages its loads, they can, without users' knowledge, shift the data from one center to another. These data centers might be located in completely different parts of the world and governed by different regulatory paradigms. So overall, the jurisdiction and sovereignty and governance of data, particularly that which is stored and accessed across national borders, is extremely complex and ill-defined and the largest looming problem we have now for governments and industries all over the world. We are, with respect to this issue, as one legal scholar recently put it, sailing into the future on a sinking ship. The FCC agrees. I have done interviews there, and the, the guy who was in charge of this issue said, we're in a lot of trouble. And I was like, that's all you got then? <laughs> and he said, this is a very troubling issue. I mean, they just they don't have any answers. Um, it's hard to imagine. I don't have any answers for them. It's very hard. Um, the people in South America, which I'm not even going to talk about in this talk, are doing some of the most interesting work on kind of global internet governance that we can all learn from. But RFCC, no. Um, the rights to and ownership of this data is another constellation of issues that has thus far eluded um, consistent legal and policy definition. Some services actually claim ownership of the data that they process, while others say we're just the custodians, um, while it's temporarily processed around here and we don't really own it. Um, the resulting implications for personal and institutional privacy and even national security are quite profound. So sometimes you own your data in the cloud and sometimes it gets owned. Furthermore, this control of sensitive government data by privately controlled cloud infrastructure, particularly that which is located in multiple na nations and jurisdictions, is a very precarious trend for the future of data security and digital privacy. Again, relating to the jurisdiction issue, digital policy is increasingly being shaped by terms of service and EULAs and corporate agreements of providers and carriers, all written by lawyers. Um, instead of by the vision of government or any principled application of regulatory philosophy. Um, in The End of Ownership, Aaron Perzanowski and Jason Schultz write that license terms and agreements are long, inscrutable, and full of bad news. They are the Lars von Trier films of legal documents. <laughs> and they now function as a form of privately made law um, that functions at the expense of consumers. And it's in this more informal type of regulation, which um, Lobato and Thomas in their book, The Informal Media Economy, actually suggest we might be better off with, um, that's actually determining the limits and behavior um, and constellation of rights in this space more than anything else. I, I would argue with Lobato and Thomas that it usually falls to the free market, which is never really free. That is not the best way to establish long-term legal safeguards for the rights and freedoms of private citizens. Um, the Apple FBI standoff in 2016 over iPhone encryption um, is an interesting example, and it's also just the most dramatic in a sea of everyday such events. Um, there is actual legislation and formal regulations that determine how data, personal or otherwise, is supposed to be treated. The problem is, it was written when I looked like this. Um, I'm humiliating myself to make the point that these laws are extremely dated. 
We won't linger on that anymore. The Electronic Communications Privacy Act was written in 1986. It was passed in the Reagan era when people talked on phones that were stuck to the walls. Um, we actually had a, there were actual plans. My dad was a lawyer who paced a lot and pulled the phone out of the wall once a week. And we had a special plan that he could break as many phones as he wanted and then the guy would show up and reinstall the phone for free. So there were certain, it was interesting the way that they took, they took care of, now you drop your phone and it's all over, right? <laughs> that, that was a one good thing about the phone back then. Um, anyway, there were phones stuck to the walls. People wrote messages to people who weren't home on pieces of paper. And we had face-to-face -face communication the rest of the time. Um, this law was created in order to expand and revise federal wiretapping and eavesdropping provisions, which themselves had been written in 1968. And they were mainly focused on um, uh, telephone lines and they're used by organized crime figures. The ECPA was designed to extend protections against unconstitutional wiretaps to digital conversations. And it was applied in 1986 also to computer-based communications, including email and digital data. It was supposed to be protecting consumer privacy. But since it's so incredibly dated, it no longer protects data the way it is used today. And it leaves us totally vulnerable. It actually makes online surveillance easier than the surveillance of postal mail or phone calls or the cops looking through your trash. Um, primarily because of how it has characterized data and the serious problems it's created related to third party storage. Stay with me. I get a little <laughs> weird here, so just stay, hang with me. Um, Third-party storage is just another way of saying all your data that's stored in the cloud. Um, accessible through and distributed by your internet service provider and your platform of choice, Google, Yahoo, your university, or used by your mobile phone, which can also legally be used as a tracking device for you. Um, these are all considered to be used, uh, considered to be third parties. And the third-party problems are largely because of the ECPA's creation, this, I told you it gets a little weird, that's why I put the pom-pom picture in, um, of the Stored Communications Act. Okay, that's just one thing that was created by the ECPA. The Stored Communications Act said that data um, that is stored or at rest for uh, six months is technically abandoned and therefore it doesn't require a warrant, just a subpoena. In 1986, online document storage was extremely expensive. You're not gonna pay a ton of money to keep data stored somewhere for six months, that would have been insane. So in some ways it makes a little sense um, and a little bit more conceivable that it would be abandoned. Unlike now, when everybody uses third parties to store their data and to communicate all day, every day. That's what the cloud is, one giant third party. So there's a few things to unpack here. First of all, the various assignments of categories of data each of which are having their own legal crisis at this moment, and I don't have time to go into that. But data which is considered at rest um, is inactive and stored in servers, and that's different from data that's in motion, traveling through a network or temporarily residing in a computer's memory, and that's different from data that's in use, which is archived data under constant change. Um, these are fascinating and totally problematic de designations. Um, when I was writing this, I was like, what would Raymond Williams think? Raymond Williams think about this and maybe students having write his keyword essay on the cloud and thinking about, geez, mobility, privatized, mobility, all of this stuff, just, it makes me think of Raymond Williams. Um, it would be a great assignment. It, makes, it also makes you stop and think, are there any 
incriminating emails in your inbox that you haven't looked at in the last six months or documents or photos that you don't want the government looking at, it might be a good time to put them in motion. So since 1986, data, does not, data arrests not need a warrant. A warrant is a legal authority issued by a judge to perform an act that would otherwise be illegal, like wiretapping or surveilling someone, someone's email. It's given to a third party, like a policeman or a special counsel looking for information about Facebook accounts associated with Russian operatives trying to undermine a presidential election. A subpoena is a requirement to perform a legal act that's placed on you, the one under scrutiny. So it would, an example would be a subpoena to testify before Congress about your collusion with the Russian government or a subpoena to produce evidence such as your tax returns. So if you're served with a subpoena, you have to extract and render the evidence requested. So the ECPA has also in a lot of ways made it easier for the government to surveil email and has allowed the government more efficient access to information stored in data centers all over the world. Um, this has been some point of contention in certain cases. Um, Microsoft is the one I'm following now with great interest. Um, they actually resisted a court order ordering them to surrender emails in a narcotics case. They said those emails were actually stored in Dublin and couldn't be extracted by this law. But it threw these issues into focus. Where exactly are these emails at all times? Where is the privacy violation occurring? And the courts have been quite divided. Um, the Supreme Court just last week agreed to decide in that case whether law enforcement authorities armed with a valid search warrant from a federal judge can demand that the US tech sector hand over data that is stored in overseas servers. I'm going to get to this when I talk about the Patriot Act too. Um, the justices will review a lower court's reading that US, they said US warrants don't apply to data housed on foreign servers. In this instance, it was a Microsoft server in Ireland. Um, the government appealed, contending it has the legal right with a valid warrant to reach into the uh, world servers with the assistance of the tech sector, no matter where it's stored. So Microsoft versus the US will be a very important case to watch next year and hinges on whether the ECPA can actually reach into other countries' borders and cloud infrastructure. Um, the takeaway is that these 30 plus year old laws designed to pivot when criminal syndicates started using electronic means of communications are no longer protecting our privacy in the digital space. They're being adjudicated ad hoc by Silicon Valley, rewritten in piecemeal by the courts, and in desperate need of a legislative overhaul. Um, the one law that we do have that protects us very specifically is the Video Privacy Protection Act. Um, that was passed in 1988 in reaction to the publication of failed Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork's video rental history in a newspaper, which was considered the outer limits of personal intrusion at that time. Um, the VPPA is one of the strongest and one of the only legislative protections afforded to consumer privacy against a specific form of data collection. And I was trying to find videos or images for this slide. So there's only really like horrible images of Robert Bork. I wanted the buttons that said, you've, got, you've been borked. That being borked was a, a verb after he was um, trounced, but it was hard to find, so sorry. Um, Okay, this, this law prevents videotape rental services from knowingly disclosing your information to a third party. So your ISP can surveil you, the government can read your emails that you haven't answered since last spring, but nobody 
can ever know what VHS tapes you are renting right now, ever. And that's really the best we can do for digital privacy in the 21st century. I do want to note that in 2012, Netflix successfully lobbied to have this law revised to allow consumers to share their viewing data through social media. Um, we're going back to the tech sector again, um, setting policy. In an interview I did with Ted Sarandis for the digital, um, the distribution revolution book, um, he's the chief content officer of Netflix. He was talking about the work he was doing at that time to change the law. He said, we're living in a culture of sharing, recommending and curating. You can share the music you listen to on Spotify. You can share the books you're reading from Amazon. You can share the news you're reading from the Washington Post. But this law makes it impossible to do the same for videos you watch on Netflix. Yet we can do it in every other country in the world. We connect Facebook accounts to Netflix accounts and people love it. Of course you don't want to do it. Just tick a box. Simple. We've done some amazing things in the world. I'm sure we can figure this one out too. And they did. And now on social media, we're in a kind of opt out of surveillance if you can figure it out era of privacy affordances. <coughs> and this seeps into our culture. Um, Netflix is, of course, first and foremost, a data analytics company and has said that 100% of its decisions are based on the nuggets of data it collects from viewers every time they log on. And the scope of data that they collect from their 100 million Video streaming subscribers is staggering. Search data, ratings data, location data, how many times you fall asleep watching the same thing data or re-watching something and on what device. Social media references, bookmarks, it's all there. Um, it, the additional dimension of surveillance as fortifying the gates really begins to kind of complicate human agency and our own desires in this, in this picture. Um, it's also worth mentioning the Communications Decency Act of 1996, um, an amendment to the Telecom Act. And this act removed the responsibility for data and communications taking place on servers from the operator of those, of, uh, of the operator hosting those servers. It offers infrastructure providers protections against what their users say or publish online. It was written to regulate porn on the internet, really. Um, but it also takes us back to the history of obscene phone calls, the heavy breathers, um, because the telephone company was not and is not responsible for what is said over their lines. Um, the creator of the speech is responsible, not the carrier of it, because the phone company didn't want to be responsible for every pervert in America and what they decided to do, um, nor should they be. So this protection and this regulatory, regulatory vision for communication technologies has also been carried over to cloud infrastructure. The Communications Decency Act views broadband and cable conduits only as dumb pipes. <coughs> Carriers are indemnified from responsibility for the content they carry. Um, how this will translate as the political blowback hits Facebook and Twitter, who are claiming similar types of status, platforms that are indemnified carriers of content they know nothing about, even when they were paid $100,000 in rubles um, for political ads by fake accounts or a head of state uses them to threaten nuclear war. This will be interesting to watch and to see how long this lasts. Um, so the infrastructure, while not responsible for the content, is the main legal focus and its geographical location is the key to jurisdictional and ownership determinations regarding the content, so it's very confusing. Um, however, here's the real kicker. The US government claims the right to seize that content on those carriers no matter where it is because of 
Um, the Patriot Act was a massive piece of legislation, very hastily written in the wake of 9-11, um, that did many things related to security and surveillance. And one of them was declare that any cloud data in any server in the world was subject to seizure by the US government. Um, the US authorities can intercept and inspect data which is housed, stored, or processed by a company that's a US-based company or is wholly owned by a US parent company, no matter where it's stored or what nationality it is. Its reauthorization gave the federal government powers to subpoena data from service providers and to use gag orders so that those providers can't even tell a customer that his or her data has been turned over to the authorities. Um, these national security letters or the NSLs, if I put those up there, the NSLs, um, that they used to get this data and impose the gag orders were found to have been massively systemically abused by the FBI in a 2010 audit by the Department of Justice and the Office of the Inspector General. So to add to these legal problems related to the jurisdiction, ownership, and access and responsibility, we also have a government that's repeatedly acted outside the boundaries of the law and a private sector for, that for the most part is either actively cooperating or fails to put up much of a fight. This Microsoft case is an interesting new turn, so we'll see about that. Um, after the Patriot Act, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act amendments, or it's much easier to just say the FISA amendments, 2008, further expanded the government's authority by forcing the court to approve entire programs of surveillance um, and not just individual warrants one by one as they were previously handled. And that essentially gave us the PRISM program and led to the Snowden revelations. It's an all or nothing deal now. Um, and so thanks in part to the FISA amendments and the, um, the former US-EU Safe Harbor Act has been rendered invalid and that happened in October 2015, so two years ago now, um, by the European Court of Justice in what has been, you might know it as the Facebook case. Um, it's called, it's uh, Max Schrems versus the Irish Data Protection Commissioner. Basically what began as a grad student seminar paper. So don't ever feel like you can't have impact in this world as a grad student. Um, it turned into one of the biggest game changers in international trade and the global exchange of personal data in history. Um, this agreement, this uh, safe harbor agreement between the US and the EU basically allowed for the transfer of personal data between the two. It allowed them to do what used to be known as e-commerce and now it's just known as commerce. Um, but the court found that the US law did not afford European citizens adequate privacy protections for their personal data that was being processed and stored by US servers. The, U the Europeans take privacy a lot more seriously than we do. They actually even have different definitions for it and they care more about it. The agreement allowed them to deal with a watered down version of their standards and then this grad student, Max Schrem, said, I don't think Facebook is adequately protecting my data, my personal data. And then, um, so this also happened in no small part because of the FISA amendments, right? Because of these blanket programs for handling surveillance. Um, Safe Harbor was the cornerstone of transatlantic e-commerce and companies like Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google and others have relied upon it completely. So now it's renamed, it's been renamed the Privacy Shield. And that's kind of what's risen from the ashes of the safe harbor agreement. Um, it's extremely fragile. 
Donald Trump has almost destroyed it twice already, and it's just a matter of time before he does completely. So he even ha there's been nobody appointed to the key positions in Europe to maintain it. I'm, it's it's a it's gonna be gone soon enough. So this is a big problem for and uh, corporations care much more about this than we've been hearing. Um, lastly, I want to talk about the right to be forgotten case of 2014 in which a Spanish citizen successfully forced Google to remove personal data from search results. It's funny that he was, it was about a bankruptcy and like the whole huge legal case just let everyone in the whole world know about his bankruptcy. I thought that was ironic, but anyway, he, it highlights the contested privacy standards of the US and the EU as well as the lack of consistency in global privacy protections. Um, in this case, the European Court of Justice issued a decision that requires Google to allow its European users to remove unwanted personal information in the form of metadata that links to web pages from search results. Um, this right to be forgotten promotes the absence of big data related to individual, kind of a, a digital version of the right to be let alone, which was famously written about in the 1890. Um, Warren and Brandeis Supreme Court decision that established many of our supreme uh, many of our privacy rights, defining privacy privacy in the negative. Um, the court determined that Google is acting as a data controller in providing its search service, and so the company has to honor these requests. Um, with this ruling, search engines that are supported by advertising must take responsibility for the content that it links to, and may be required to purge the results even if the material was previously published legally. Um, and they are no longer regarded legally as a neutral intermediary. So it begs the question, how long will other platforms and ISP and data center themselves be regarded as neutral intermediaries in the global trade of data and personal information? The 96 Communications Decency Act views ISPs as dumb pipes and not as data controllers. But that's not necessarily how the rest of the world views um, this infrastructure. And it's a notable site of contestation that's already emanating outward from platforms and from other territories. Um, these issues are also crucial factors in establishing the digital future for culture, information exchange, and citizenship. And I recognize the tremendous challenges and obstacles involved, including the cultural differences in the definitions of privacy and security, and a lack of coordinated global efforts in internet governance, and clashing internet, international standards and an absence of consensus about technological and even psychological norms for data security. But there are larger issues and freedoms and rights at stake um, that are critical to the health of democratic political systems, digital citizenry and global communications and culture. So looking at these often invisible forms of infrastructure and their regulatory architectures and histories of inelegance is one way into that conversation. Um, it's also a way to invite media scholars to think about the stakes of these policy visions and what they really mean for our cultural definitions of autonomy, personal information, and privacy, and, it, it, and that we consider the creep of tyranny in this landscape, the true costs of surveillance, um, the sacrifices and legacies of mobility and industrialization and convenience, as well as the mighty power of access and the vulnerabilities baked into our desire to share. Um, an in-depth analysis of digital media policy also demands, in the end, an accounting for the erasure of the public interest, 
which has been disappeared as a central component of the vision behind regulatory policy for our media, lost to the overwhelming force of deregulated monopolistic service providers who pretend to answer to captured regulatory agencies awash in their lobbying funds and run by their best friends and former colleagues. Somehow it's forgotten that just seven months ago, early in Donald Trump's term, the Republican Congress voted to sell out American citizens' privacy to the highest bidder and removed Obama-era FCC privacy protections, and Trump signed that bill. The government basically undid the last rules that prevented ISPs from selling your personal information. Um, the same ISPs that you pay an obscene amount of money to every month for access to the internet which they control. So now that they have done that after being lobbied by the telecom industries and receiving millions of dollars for their votes, your browsing history, your online activity, your location, your digital footprint, those are all free for digital for cable companies and wireless providers to do whatever they want with, and you will never know how they're using it or when. But you can be sure that they are. Um, these companies are selling your information for big payouts, but it doesn't belong to them. It's yours. Um, worst of all, this bill prevents the FCC from establishing similar consumer privacy protections ever again. Um, that insidious and blatant attack on its own citizenry, the government's casting aside of the public interest, for the private gain that is becoming all too familiar and routine is the true regulatory crisis from which I fear we may never recover. Um, happy Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and thank you for your time. I look forward to anybody's questions or comments. I have a question about a, a few of the terms that you used. Um, could you tell us? A little more about what you mean by data at rest versus data in use or in motion, because I would think that a very clever, say, international criminal could find a way to activate certain data they didn't want uh, easily accessed by, you know, simulating its use. Yes, well, that would that'd be easy enough. Yeah, and so so I just wanted a little more on those two terms. And the other thing that might be a somewhat more complicated question or answer is about what you mean by the government. Um, because it's actually so many different entities, there's so many moving parts, and I thought that was highlighted when you talked about the FBI doing an audit of the Department of Justice, I, I think it was in 2010, and finding all these problems. I mean, the FBI and the Department of Justice are both the government, and in certain contexts we might think of it as a kind of monolith, but then we see moments when they are in conflict with each other. You know, say yes. the FBI is investigating the President of the United States, we might think of both of them in general terms as the government, but actually they're, they're, they're different entities that might have conflicts of interest. Yeah, that's an excellent point, and now I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I need to nuance that in the book because I can never say the government anymore. So we have, I have to think about, is it um, the legislative body? Is it um, the judicial branch, I mean, what, what am I even talking about? So mostly I'm, when, when I'm talking about in this paper is the government as regulatory agents. Okay. Um, or sometimes the Congress who act in concert with regulatory agencies sometimes. Sometimes they get mad at each other, but usually they act in concert. So yeah, that's what I'm referring it to, but I appreciate that attention to the distinction because it needs to be nuanced. And as for the data dis distinctions, um, data at rest is something that has not been accessed in six months or more. So that's kind of a plain. So it's access. What constitutes access? I guess 
Like I open my email every day and I have emails in there that have been there for two years. Yeah. If I don't open that individual email, yes. have I not accessed it even though the, the, I saw the file in front of me? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it, it hasn't been accessed. It hasn't, I don't think it goes as far as having to be altered, but I think it has to be accessed. So moved, right? Moved. You require it I to be. I can't just open something and then close it and that counts as use. In some context, they talk about not even like opening it, but mm -hmm. responding. If you didn't respond, like the last response will be considered the last. Oh, yes. Even if you opened it a thousand times afterwards. Huh. Huh. Which is wow. Word, right? yeah. 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 And then data in motion is something that's traveling through a network, temporarily residing in a computer's memory. <coughs> and then there's data in use, which is a third kind that is under constant change, but it's also residing in servers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we can talk more about the super nitty gritty of that. I just think the crazy thing is, like you're saying, even though we know it's there and we even look at it, if you don't access it for six months, it's kind of fair game. Mm -hmm. But thank you for that. William. Well, thanks, first of all, for this really, really important work. And thank you. Um, oh. And my question kind of picks up on a trajectory that the end of your paper was, at least I was carrying it lean towards, which is the, the tensions between, um, so you're, you're talking about something that's presented to us as deterritorialized, but in fact is very territorialized. Um, and the tension between European notions of privacy, of the ways in which data are understood, the ways in which Google is allowed to operate, some of which is coming from the, the courts, some of which is coming from the media desk, do you see a wedge that can be exploited somewhere hovering above the Atlantic to sort of disaggregate the planet from the United States of, of, of America? Uh, if this place is going to be run without a notion of public, the public and the public interest, Europe is still pretty strong on the public and public interest. Are there ways to, um, are there issues that can be uh, amplified? What I see happening in Europe right now is that a ton, I mean, literally, I hear from Roland Hale, our university's lawyer, like every couple of months you get an email that another thousand lawyer lobbyists have been sent to Brussels. And they're really trying very hard to change the scene there. There's not a, a, a ton of activism in Europe right now, but there could be. So are there particular issues where if Europe were a little more awake, uh, the public sphere could help what the courts are doing, what the media does? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things I could say to that. One is the extreme reaction has been in on the part of some countries to have to move towards national clouds where they will not this is kind of the at the government level I'll get down to the people level but they've decided oh we will you know Germany's like well we will not host data from other nations and no other na nation will host German data because it's an interesting way in Germany especially as they're opening their borders to refugees and shutting down their digital borders um, it's a pretty extreme and untenable solution, right? But that has been discussed in more than one country and this idea even of the Schengen cloud. Um, and so something that the data is going to remain in the Schengen borders and after that, you're on your own and you figure it out, right? So there's, there's that, but I, as the, the great philosopher John Oliver said, <laughs> Um, <laughs> Americans have figured out if you want to hide something from the people, put it inside something really boring. And so this, you know, 
I always have a complex about giving policy talks because I'm like, oh my God, everyone's going to die because it's so boring. But I, it's at the same time, it's so important. And, and so it's so hard to imagine engaging the public on these issues because it's so, I study it for a living and it's so confusing and so hard to distill. And so getting people to rally around, you know, the importance of data security when they don't, they seriously need a lot of education on how to understand what's even happening to their data. It just seems very challenging to me. Um, and it seems like the way that it's been happening is certain citizens take their case to the courts. And so it starts to be piecemealed together in certain courts. But if there's I, a press, there's like a regular press narrative about these cases. They're covered, they're well covered in the press. So the pushback yeah, against but, Facebook and Google from a European perspective is, is like, that's a narrative that's out there. Yeah. And the egregious Americans, and Trump really is the personification of it. If you only link your narrative to that, it, it, it provokes a reaction. Yeah. Wondering, is there an issue? I mean, are there, are there so the, the, Wedge the security issue is, curr is currently like pretty well taken care of, for the moment taken care of in Europe? Are there any other singular issues that people can really differentiate themselves from the slippery slope here? Net neutrality, for instance. How's that going to work in a transnational flow? Well, it's so funny because in Europe, they don't, it's like, they're like, obviously we have net neutrality. It's not even something we think about arguing over, right? Because there is this baked in concern for the public interest in how, I mean, in how they operate in their society. And so it's just, um, so when they, you know, I talk about our struggles and our whole history and it, in the courts and with the FCC and everything that has gone down and now it's just gonna, poof. It's very hard for them to relate. And I just think we continue to alienate everybody else. And then I, we all have friends all over the world that say, what's happening over there? You know, what is happening to people? And I, so I found it very hard to translate to even, you know, concerned, intellectual engaged people these issues are not very hard to, you know that in 2003 remember when like the country kind of rallied around media ownership limits and they the um michael powell said oh we're gonna raise these limits george w bush's fcc chairman he said i waited and waited one night for the angel of the public interest to appear and she never showed up like even making fun of the concept of the public interest. And they, they said, the FCC that said they were gonna raise the limit of ownership to 45%. You can own 45% of the stations. And the public actually went crazy. It was on the front page of the New York Times. Um, my mom who knows that I study this stuff for a living, but doesn't really understand what I do. She said, honey, do you know that they want the media to be able to own a lot more of the media and I'm like yeah so maybe like that you know once she cared I was like this is what I, only what I've been telling her for 20 years but she finally realized it because it was on the front page of the New York Times it was on other places so uh, I mean journalism is being gutted at one level but in other ways it's being more energized and revitalized than ever so I think there is space and it just incumbent on, I feel more responsible than ever 
for teaching these issues and connecting them to the stakes for citizenship. And I feel like journalists do too. And so translating it is really hard. And I don't know, I, we're all just doing our part. But things like this, when you can talk to people about it, may help you do it better. Because I'm just alone at my computer and I don't talk to other people. <laughs> so when I come up for air and have a conversation, it's great to see what questions come up and what you guys think connects and doesn't connect and what relates to how you understand this so that we can do a better job of explaining it all. Uh, I realize that in the US, because of COPA, like there's like everybody can point at COPA, I mean, for, for youth and privacy issues. Everybody's like, okay, there's COPA and that will take care of it. But I was wondering if it's been the case in any of the, of the pieces of regulation that you mentioned that youth or child interest has been used to justify, you know, like specific measures. I mean, I realized that COPA sort of became the cash-all for anything that was youth-related. But I was wondering because in, I come from Mexico and there the sort of child interest that was used to like justify surveillance didn't make it into a specific child protection act. It was more like yeah. throughout all the surveillance yeah. legislation. I see that a lot of times dumped onto the hardware providers and just they like bake in some kind of, you know, parental surveillance chip that they can do or as far as, but as far as the online regulation to protect children, I need to do more research on that. I, I don't, I can't really speak to that because I don't see, I don't see much concern for children, but I, maybe I haven't been looking. For children's personal data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't, I haven't seen it being treated differently okay. in anything I've been reading, but I haven't been looking specifically. Yeah. So, and then it's kind of what do you like what do we as consumers um, or like do like in terms of avoiding like beyond just like trying to your policy makers and things like that, like what what do you suggest in terms of like protecting your data or your if any of the ISP that you're using essentially can sell like, your data for any reasons and like how do you get around that, if at all, or is it just kind of like a resolution that we don't have any options. I think that's a great question. I mean, I feel like turning into a Victorian is your only answer. Like write each other letters with a pen, get some nice stationery. Because what else are we going to do? I find huge problems myself with this question because I do, I'm, I'm weird about my phone number. I won't give my phone number to anything. And I have like a fake email for people that need my email. Like I'm, I try to protect it, but at some point people do need to find you, you know? And so, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't wanna say acceptance because this is unacceptable, but I think being informed about what's going on and never letting your representatives off the hook ever. And this goes, I mean, this goes to local politics too, it really does. And I know everybody says all politics are local, but they really are, especially when it comes to the provision of services. And I just read um, Susan Crawford's new book called Reaching for Light, and it's, it's not out yet, it's in the review stage. And 
it's completely brilliant, but it explains so the question of why don't we have fiber optic cable, which the rest of the world has, which is the standard. And she says, you know, every dollar spent on a copper wire or laying a cable, a broadband cable is wasted. So why aren't we using fiber optic cable? And most of that, the answer is in local politics. Um, so there's, there's local and state and definitely federal reasons why we're not. But so what part of my answer is just to say, think about the local as well. But as far as um, the idea of being surveilled, I don't know. I mean, Lisa, it, Lisa might have a, answer, a better answer to that. No? I mean, does anybody? I, I, it's a hard one. I don't really know what to do. I try to, I go to conferences where like everybody has like a thing of duct tape over their um, <laughs> camera. And I used to think those people were totally weird. And now I don't. Now I think they're smart, you know? I mean, once we found out that, Samsung TVs were, oops, accidentally, oopsie, they were surveilling you. You know, you, so I don't know how we can constantly be prepared for this. It's kind of a different way of thinking about going through life in some ways. I'm going to write more letters, so. Anybody else? Yes. Um, would you say this is mainly a challenge of communication? Because I'm thinking, First of all, when you say public interest, um, which public? So it might be that the public in Europe has a different interest in mind. It might be that Ireland as a country um, prefers to host those servers that Facebook keeps there because of the tax benefits that they collect because they are stored there. Um, so one, one point is that there might be different interests locally and nationally and globally. Um, but another one is that if the question of jurisdiction is determined by where that is stored, and you, I, I can get the sense that you're against this idea, um, that the jurisdiction will be determined by where the location of the data. I'm so not necessarily against it. I'm against not having a, a better solution. Okay, so the. And the flip solution would be to determine the jurisdiction based on the identity of the corporation. Is that I mean, there could be so many. There's the legal standard is where that data is stored, and that's that would be okay if it could be determined at any point where that data is actually stored. But it's not always stored in the same place, right? It's often moved, and it's often fragmented as it's being processed and there's really, it's almost impossible to determine these kind of things, so. Yeah, but also if you have um, more rigid law in the US, it may be that they're moving the servers from Europe to, I don't know, a country that doesn't care as much and doesn't have regulation as much. Yeah, I mean, there there are servers in those places too. Part of, part of the issue is how expensive it is to cool the, server farms, and so they go where it's easy and cheaper to cool those servers, and those places aren't necessarily the best places for data protection policy. So I don't know if you know Mel Hogan's work, but I would recommend her work on the kind of environmental and energy issues related to data in the cloud. Her stuff is really great. But I, I, I would say that the public's interest is not 
in having their data sold to the highest bidder. And the whole public's interest is not in having increasingly expensive service with increasingly uh, more intense surveillance or terrible customer service and on and on. I mean, we, there hasn't been, our telecommunications policy has only benefited private corporations. It has done nothing for the public. If it was for us, we would be using fiber cable and paying one-tenth of the price. That's in the public's interest. Better, faster service. You could download uh, 10 movies in two seconds for 10 bucks a month. But, you know, so that's really the public's interest. So that's, that's kind of what I mean. But thank you. So you mentioned a pretty critical points. I mean, you mentioned several, but one would love to sort of explore more. The idea that the EU LA is so sort of aware of a lot of the regulations that yeah. That seems pretty problematic. So I'm curious, like, how, how on earth could we have our governing body actually given the confidence to, to make those regulations itself? And who do we trust to make those regulations responsibly? What are those, right? What do you mean? What so, so like the, the Facebook or iTunes EULA, uh -huh. they're making a lot of very bold choices with how and what is owned by whom. Like, so, so in uh, class, we're wrestling with uh, this idea that the Harry Potter website for fan fiction, when you use it, you're explicitly giving them control of your fan fiction authorship, whatever, forever. Same with the George Lucas sort of Star Wars fan space. There's, there's like, in the agreements, you're signing off on handing them your data forever, anything you create there. And that seems like stuff that, it's easy for me to say is like, a, would, could be user of any of these platforms, Facebook, et cetera, we're using a lot of chats. Like, there are things about it I don't want to agree to, but also I'm going to have to, I mean, I'm going to have to use email, Facebook, whatever. So we can't not sign the uh, EULA so we've got to have laws that handle the regulation and say this is what the bounds are. But who's going to write those bounds? And who, who would you argue we could even trust? Like who on earth could write law in the interest of public good as a concept? Like who, who could do this? How about the ACLU? Yeah, I would love the ACLU to do it it's or public knowledge. Um, those people who are have been at the forefront of lobbying for the public's interest on telecommunications issues and many others. So Gene Kimmelman was like the main lawyer in the net neutrality case for you, for, for us. And so those people, lobby, public interest lobbyists, the ACLU, um, academic, some academics I would trust. I wouldn't trust anybody in the government. But I read too much of this stuff. So, I mean, but. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to, thanks for a great talk, by the way. Um, I wanted to ask you, to what extent is the globalization of finance a kind of model for thinking about how digital corporations structure themselves internationally to avoid regulation. So are all 
our data centers essentially, like what, have you looked at all at like um, business agreements between the digital giants and like local construction of data centers in terms of offshoring ownership so that these entities then avoid regulation and have sort of shelters. I'm just thinking about like in the history of finance and its globalization, it's the Swiss bank right. account, the Bermuda business. Um, it's all gonna be on like a submarine, right? So just thinking about how pre-existing models of other in other sectors kind of play a role in maybe shaping the possibilities yeah. of what happens in terms of the things that you're describing too. Because I think those jurisdictional questions are so fascinating when you start to think about the materialities of these things. And yeah, I'm gonna write that down. So the the question that Heather asked about like how specifically will you define data at rest, data in motion, mm -hmm. um, data in use, um, whether it's in a data center in transit, how are, are states and corporations working both to try to regulate and try to avoid regulation simultaneously? It's just, it's a very complicated picture to try to map out. It is, but I think everything does follow the model of finance. Everything follows the money anyway. So whatever the custodians of money are doing, it's kind of, you can look at it the same way. I mean, data is functioning as money in a lot of ways. So that's a great avenue to look into though further. Cause I haven't looked at the, those specific things that you're talking about, but that would be really wise to do. Anything else or are we done for today? Thanks so much for all of your great thoughts.